Hi, folks. It's a generic American greeting for hi. Hello, folks. There you go. Uh, my name is Josh, and uh, I, I sat in this general vicinity from 99 to 2003 uh, on the evening services. Uh, so long road to get to where I am currently, but uh, always thrilled to come back and to be trusted with Rob's stage, if you know what I mean. Um, you guys are in First and Second Kings. How many of you have been tracking along with it, reading it in small groups, coming weekly? Just so I know how many people know the backstory. Great. We're going to rewind a lot today and go quickly so that way the things I have to say make perfect, harmonious sense with you. Um, let's see. Uh, it's the story of Elijah, Elisha, Elijah in uh, 1 Kings has been a one-man, famine-inducing, bull-bale-slaughtering wrecking crew. And whenever Elijah told King Ahab that a famine was about to come, uh, there was a very good reason why. It was because Elijah won Bible Bowl. Now, I don't know if that's what your commentary says, but if you read between the lines, it's in there. Because Deuteronomy chapter 11 says this, be careful because you will provoke the Lord's anger and he will shut up the heavens. Elijah does an amazing thing to King Ahab in, uh, in about a thousand-ish BC. What he says to God is that I know your words, God, and I see the people that I'm living among. And God, I'm going to hold you to your words. And so it's not that Elijah is so powerful to call a famine. It's that he knows God's words and calls God to be true and to honor himself. And no rain is an incredibly powerful tool, especially politically, for, for King Ahab. But it's also a giant problem. Because what happens to everyone else in the community whenever the famine comes, not just the king, is affected, right? Right? Okay, so I started to do some research on this. When famines happen, we can assume who are the most affected. Go ahead and say it. Two groups of people. The elderly and then the children. Excellent. But here's the demographic that surprised me. The demographic that surprised me is that males have a way higher mortality rate in a famine than females. And it's because girls are tougher, right? It's not true. It's because girls are meaner, and that is true, and you all know that. So I'm dealing with a little bit of a, of a cold. I've been teaching at a junior high camp all week, and so my immune system is down, and uh, I mean, I've literally am praying for my voice. But in our family, uh, my wife, Laura, would always sit there, and I would sit in the back corner uh, when she was here. She's like the one person in our family that's not allowed to get sick, that's not allowed to be affected by a famine or anything. And so here's the idea <clears throat> that if mortality is concentrated in the elderly men and the young boys, who is responsible for carrying the knowledge of the community? It's these guys. And who is responsible for growing in knowledge and wisdom so that way they can carry the community? It's these guys. And so what happens in famine is that the entire community is devastated in population because people die, but also in knowledge. This will be incredibly important. We know that Elijah, throughout 1 Kings, 
<clears throat> is going to ultimately call back rain. It'll be a three and a half year drought. And the famine has hurt the people. And so we come up to Mount Carmel. This is uh, 1 Kings 19. And at the end of the first, uh, at the end of the Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 19 scene, Elijah is running for his life. And there's a woman who is really mean that's chasing after him. It's Jezebel. And so here is kind of my aha as I'm studying for this sermon. Chronologically, after Jezebel says, I'm going to get you, Elijah, he runs out into the desert and God takes him to Mount Sinai, this holy, holy place. And there on Mount Sinai, God is not in the earthquake. He's not in the storm. He's not in the lightning, but he's in the what? The whisper. Yeah, exactly. And you know what Elijah says in response to God's whisper? They're trying to kill me too. I'm the only one left. And I love what God says in response to, I'm the only one left. God tells Elijah to go anoint, hey, let me get this right, Hazael. He says, go anoint Jehu. And then he says this, and this is setting up for today. He says, go anoint Elisha. So Elijah is supposed to go make a disciple in response to the small, still, thank you, whisper. Here comes aha number two. If that's chronologically immediately, if Jezebel is chasing Elijah over to Mount Carmel, what that means is Elisha has lived through the drought. That was new for me. I never thought about that thought. Not only has he lived through the drought as a young man, he's handpicked by Elijah. You probably did know that. But then he emulates immediately Elijah and begins to kill cows. Read it for yourself. That was a joke because he straight up slaughtered everything he was with. Is it back there? Oh, yeah, good. All right, sweet. You can smile at those moments. Here we go. Throughout the rest of 1 Kings, we lose sight of Elisha. He's not factoring into the story throughout the rest of 1 Kings. And we know that there's a passing of time because right before the flaming wheels come to take Elijah home, Elijah grabs Elisha and they walk across the Jordan River. How do they get there? Elijah takes off his coat, whacks the the river, it parts, and these two guys cross over in full company of a prophet. Elijah says, what do you want? Why are you walking with me? Elisha says, I want a double portion of your power. Elijah says, you can have it if you can see me go. Right? It's like a game I play with my four-year-old, right? You, if you can catch me, you can tickle me or vice versa or something like that. The idea here is that Elisha now has a thing in front of him that he must do in order to have double portion power. Sure enough, the chariot comes, Elisha sees it, he grabs Elisha, Juh's coat, whack, hits the Jordan and rolls back across. Why am I setting this up? Because it's in full view of a company of prophets. And those guys now know that Elisha carries Elijah's power. Everybody cool on this backstory? It's going to come to fruition here in a bit. All right. Then Elisha begins to prove what double portion power means, aside from just whacking rivers. 
There's a city called Jericho. You may have heard of it. The walls came tumbling down. It got rebuilt multiple times. But the, the, the spring that was feeding into the city was poisonous. And so here's what Elisha says, demonstrating power. He says, grab a bowl, salt, throws it in the spring. And that's the end of chapter two. And now you're into last week. Who was here last week? Good. This should sound familiar to more of you then. <clears throat> last week ends with a horrific story of the king of Moab. Ah, child sacrifice. Okay, it's bad. Chapter four opens with an abundance of death as well, but God's abundance to his people within the death spaces. So we have an evil death, but then the reality of death and God's abundance through death. There's a widow whose sons are about to be stolen, sold into slavery to pay off debt. The husband is already dead. The abundance of oil not only redeems the boys from slavery, and it also pushes the family into freedom. The second story from chapter four, and this was last week, uh, Elisha meets a husband and wife team, and uh, they build a guest house for him. He says, what are your hopes and dreams? The woman's womb is full of death. She can't have a child. He said, this time next year when I come back. And she says, channeling the Backstreet Boys, quit playing games with my heart. Spoiler alert, the baby does come. Double spoiler alert, the baby does die. Triple spoiler alert, weird CPR ensues. And that was Rob's actual note that he sent me, so I'm quoting the man. What you're getting from last week is this macro understanding, this contrast between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The kingdom of darkness, which is death, and the kingdom of light, which still requires which still moves through hardship, death, but it moves through it with abundance. And the aha for you and I, as Jesus folks, is we call this resurrection power. Like this is the thing we are invited to as we hear the story and the hope of Christ. And that's just the backstory to get us to today. So I didn't check my watch. That was a fake, total fake out. All right, here we go. This is the passage for today. Second Kings chapter four. Verse 38, Elisha returns to Gilgal, and there's a famine in the region. There's a company of prophets. I think I've heard that before. They were meeting with him, and he said to his servant, put on a large pot and cook some stew for these prophets. I prefer a Jewish understanding of famine. And so whenever we look at uh, the second line here, there's famine in the region. <clears throat> from a rabbi's point of view, whenever we hear a story told, what we want to do is connect back to our fathers. So uh, the famine that, that the Jewish people are most uh, well-known, well-versed in, is wandering through the desert with Moses. And so the escape from Egypt, uh, Moses is leading God's people through the desert. They have just marked themselves as God's people with the Passover blood on their doorstep. And they have just been not only escaped into the desert, but they've been sent off into the desert with presents and food from the Egyptian people. Get out of here, kind of, not presents like you and I think of it, but seriously, presents. Here's the aha. Throughout their desert trip, especially in the very first week, they run out of water and the supplies that they're carrying, they run out of those. And so these same people from a Jewish understanding who said Yahweh, God has been with us. No one is as powerful as he. They immediately say, it would be better that we were what? Slaves back in Egypt. You have led us out here to die. 
My favorite rabbi is uh, David Foreman. Has anybody Rabbi David Foreman? You should, I'm reading a couple of his Old Testament books right now. He says this, there are no true believers in a famine. Like your heart gets revealed in a famine. And he also says this, is that our understanding as Westerners is very different than an Eastern understanding of famine. Not only is there the physical reality, but there's also a spiritual understanding as well. Foreman says this, famine is a lack for the Torah. He quotes Amos 8. You guys can see it there. The days will come. I will send a famine, but not one of bread, not a thirst for water, but hearing the words of the Lord. And I love this national Jewish understanding because this is Jesus's. I like understanding it this way because this is how Jesus understands it. Luke 4, Jesus has just been baptized. He's been sent out into the, into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, 40 days, six weeks to be tempted without food or water. And Satan shows up and says, you're hungry, right? He's like, duh, I am. There's some stones, turn them to bread. Man doesn't eat bread. He doesn't live on bread. But the word of God, this is Jesus's understanding that I'm calling us to to read this text with. I love it. Let's keep rolling. There's a practical lack of food, and there's also a deeper undercurrent. So from 2 Kings 2.38, where there's a famine on the land and the company of prophets is gathering, there's a second story for this morning, and we're going to jump straight to that one. A male comes from Baal, Baal Shalishah bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain along with the new heads of grain. So this is the second story in 2 Kings for us today. And here's the aha. If the temple in Jerusalem wasn't accessible, either politically or geographically, what a believer would do, what a good Jew would do, is bring the, the offering that Moses still commanded from Leviticus to the prophet or the leader of the city, the Levite, wherever he or she was, or I'm sorry, wherever he was, in order to support that particular servant. And so this loaf, let's look at it, man. I mean, you're talking 20 loaves of barley. One loaf feeds one man for one day, and this guy's dropping them all in in, uh, Elisha's lap. And here's the thing, guys. This is in the middle of the famine. This is an incredibly extravagant gift that this man is bringing. And so then I start to turn the mirror inside on myself. What does times of literal famine look like in my life or allegorical famine in my life? So I got two examples. The first example is literal famine, which we understand as money, right? Like our understanding of famine is, do I make enough money to support the lifestyle and the people I love? And there have been times in my wife and I's life as a single income youth pastor with four daughters that we didn't make tons. And so every month writing that check was a demonstration of our faith. And honestly, Laura and I looked at each other and it was, we agreed early in marriage that this would never not be who we were. Like despite whatever famine we understood uh, financially at the time, we would never not make tithing and giving and being faithful to what we see in scripture a part of who we are. The exact flip of that is allegorical and it's my spiritual leadership of my family. In the very rare moment where Laura and I fight, very rare. 
She's not listening to the podcast this morning. In those moments, I will withhold my spiritual leadership from her. I, like, it's the dumbest thing. When my pride is hurt, when I'm fearful of something, I will withhold my spiritual influence from my wife in just a way to show her or to prove something. And guys, what I'm, what I'm trying to draw is a question that you then get to wrestle with. What does your faith look like in literal famine or an allegorical famine when there's times where you're spiritually hungry? In Elisha, we see two distinct realities, <clears throat> one with the pot of stew and one with the loaves of bread, where his faith plays out with double portion power. And this is what I really liked. <clears throat> Both times, Elisha serves those underneath his care. Pause. What did Elijah say to God in his prayer after the whisper? I told you all, go back in your way, back tanks. He said, I am the only one left. Do you remember that? Go anoint Hazael, go anoint Jehu, go make a disciple, Elisha. And out of that, what we see is a few years later, Elisha is sitting with the sons of prophets. So he is on third generation from Elijah happening right here. And he now has a whole company to feed. Verse 40 says this, the stew was poured out for the men and they began to eat it. They cried out, man of God, there is death in the pot and they couldn't. Now, I think the aha for you and I is it makes complete sense to be like, get that out of here. But in a time of famine, this food, as bad as it is, still has value, right? Because any nourishment when you're starving is good nourishment. And what Elisha does in throwing the meal or the flour, depending on your translation, what he does is not throw out, but he redeems an entire pot, enough to feed his whole tribe. The way that I think through this, in God's economy, nothing is wasted. I don't know what your backstory is, but I know what mine looks like. And the brokenness and the times that I have walked through in my life, God has continually allowed to make, to make fruit come from tragic, tragic places. I love that. In the same famine setting, Elisha also, this is the second story, he won't allow the bounty of 20 loaves. He won't hoard in that place either. He's got a hundred men that are sitting with him in this story, but he freely gives again. And what are we learning about God's economy? That worship is an articulation of the grace we have already received. Worship, when we stand and sing together, when we give, or when we gather for teaching, we worship as an acknowledgement of the grace we have already received. And Elisha demonstrates this. Look at what he does in verse 42. Give it to the people to eat. And so it's pretty obvious that he freely gives. <clears throat> but I want you to, to actually look at the man from Baal Shalishah. When this guy shows up with his loaves, he also brings ripe sheaves of grain. Not only does he follow the Levitical code in chapter 23, verse 20, he also follows it in verse 13. What I want you guys to see here is this. This man is articulating in his most uh, overt way 
an understanding, his understanding of the grace he has received from God. It is his gift to Elisha, which Elisha then multiplies for everyone else. And so what we see here is the storyline of Elisha's faith, the man from Baal, Shalisha's faith. But I actually have a fun part here. Who demonstrates the most faith? And I'm going to give you two new examples. So there's two people we haven't talked with about yet who have demonstrated faith in these two stories. So here's your question. Which son of a prophet demonstrated the most faith? The one who stuck his spoon into the pot the second time or the son of the prophet who passed out 20 loaves of bread to 100 hungry men? So think about it. Talk amongst yourself really quickly, and then I'll call you back. And I want to know, who demonstrated the most faith? Spoon in the pot for the second time, or I'll break the loaves and fishes. Ready? Talk. All righty, Rudy. This means uh, the spoon, and this means 20 loaves of bread. You have to do it like that, sorry. <laughs> this means, I don't know. You tell me, one or two. Who showed the most faith? Vote with your, your digits. A lot of ones. Got a two on the front row, two in the middle out. 20, 20, 20. Okay, we're moving. That's interesting. Ones to twos kind of generically as we progress. And right, I'm thinking through this one. And I'm seeing myself, right? Because I don't feel like I have a double portion of, of prophet power in me, right? But there are moments where God calls me to dip my spoon back into the tragedy and the places that I found brokenness. And there's times that God gives, calls me to give freely from the abundance that he's put into my life. Um, Jesus is going to steal Elisha's glory, as you guys know, about 800 years into the future with his own loaves and fishes, miracles. But here is the wrap. You see Elisha's response, and this is where the double portion of prophet power comes from. If you wanna write that down and practice it, go for it. Here's what it comes from, and I told you this at the very opening few lines of my sermon. Whenever, whenever Elisha has needed the word of God, he has spoken the word of God. Look at what he does in verse 44. He sets it before the company of prophets. They ate, they have some left over according to the word of God. <clears throat> Here's my simple understanding of why we gather as a church. We're getting ready to participate in communion. So if you're a server, cue. Here's what we see when the church gathers. I know you guys have caught all my points, and so I'll rehash it in one storyline. We devote ourselves 
as worship for the grace that we have already freely received. And we bring our own brokenness to the cross again and again because in God's economy, there's nothing that is wasted. And then we serve and we give freely to those that God has placed under our care and whose stories bump into ours because that reminds us again and again that we're sons and daughters in a kingdom of God, which is a kingdom marked by abundance in the midst of death, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of famine. We are in a kingdom marked by abundance. And we come to the table every week as a church like Elisha to bind God to his words. Because when Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Each of you ought to examine yourself before you eat of the bread and drink from the cup, and you should worship from the grace you have already received. Amen. Into grace, how great a death.